about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. I wonder if you've seen the movie The Untouchables. Anyone? Some nods. Lots of hands. Yeah, lots of hands. Uh, fantastic movie. Great summer viewing. You've got one month left. Make this on your list. French film subtitles, hilarious. Based on a true story, though, two very different men who find their lives thrown together. On the one hand, you have the rich paraplegic, the man with everything, attendance, mansion, just not the use of his legs, uh, who's questioning whether he really wants to continue with his life at all. Then you have the tall African Frenchman from the projects in Paris, who is one by one wiping off all the options he has for his life. In a series of really quirky circumstances, their lives are forced together for a time. And what blossoms from it is quite extraordinary. These two people with really quite different needs find that each other is able to bring the other's life forward. It's the kind of friendship that when you look at it, you start to long for. It's the kind of friendship that when you look at it, it starts to reveal your own sense of inadequacy and your own ability to bring about that sort of friendship and relationship in your own life. Uh, the critics, when they saw this movie come out, said, wow, this is, this is different. We're used to boys blowing things up and girls talking, but um, I don't know what happens in girls' movies. But um, this unlikely friendship uh, was quite extraordinary at the time. I wonder what you think it is that gets in the way of this kind of thing happening, of the flourishing of friendship in our culture in our time. I think one of the things that contributes a lot is our vision of the good life. Often we think it is the most unhindered life, the one with the least attachments, the one that is most free, that is the most flourishing. To get the most out of life, be attached to the least number of people possible, have the least number of obligations. That's the vision of the good life we're shown and told in our culture. And that runs completely uh, across and is incompatible with the friendship that you see in a movie like that. How is it that we can have the longing friendship we long for? How is it that we deal with the inadequacies we feel inside us? As we look uh, at uh, this series on friendship, I think what you'll see is that the good news of the Lord Jesus gives a remarkable vision for friendship that our culture really doesn't know much about, really. Uh, it has an entirely different vision of the good life. What I want to look at today is quite simple, but quite hard. What makes a friendship? What actually brings it into being? How do you name it? What do you do with it? And we're going to look at that uh, through two friendships. One in the Old Testament, David and Jonathan, Davo, Jono, because we're Aussie. Uh, and New Testament, uh, Paul and Anismus, or Paulo and Oni. And through these, we're going to look at what makes a friendship 
how you make a friendship, and why it is that we get in our way and what we can do about it. First of all, David and Jono. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. Let's have a look. Now, this friendship is in the category of the movie we just saw. It is in the category of unlikely friendship. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of the rise and the fall of kings. King Saul is the first Israelite king. King David will become the second. And it is all about the transfer of power. And in the midst of that, Jonathan and David are set up as rivals, kind of like a Game of Thrones-esque kind of picture. What you see happening is in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan gains a massive victory over the Philistine army and gains the recognition of, the, of Israel and becomes a pretty important general. Uh, he's quite clearly the heir to the throne of Saul, his own son, who is his father. But then what happens is that David is anointed in secret as the next king of Israel. And then still a boy steps onto the field of battle and throws a stone into the head of a giant, cutting off his head. And all of a sudden, all of Jonathan's fame is forgotten. Saul, Jonathan's father, takes David into his house like a son. And all of a sudden, you have two people who could possibly run Israel. And you're supposed to have the question, will it be the giant slayer or will it be the king's son? And what we're set up for is a battle, a fight, and one of them must die. But what happens then is quite extraordinary. Do you remember what happened in 18 verse 1? When David had finished speaking with Saul, David holding the head of a giant, talking to Saul. When he'd finished talking, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. Rather than being rivals who fight to the death, they will become brothers who will risk their lives for one another. It's quite beautiful, really. It's so, so affectionate the way Jonathan regards David. Uh, it's not cold, it's deep, it's true, it's dear. So much so that a lot of people, when they look at this picture of, and, and the intimacy of this language, assume that maybe something romantic is happening in this relationship with uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, Geraldine Brooks, in her book, The Secret Court, I read it over summer, good summer read, uh, a couple of chapters I can tell you not to read, though. They're pretty graphic. Um, she, her assumption is that on this night, they start sleeping together. And I think that's interesting, and I think uh, that tells us a little bit about our culture and our approach to intimacy, actually. I think our culture maybe has come to the assumption that if, you, if there is intimacy that exists, it really has to be sexual in some way, and that there really isn't a realm for intimacy outside of that. I think that's a cultural reading that's read into this story. Because actually, what it, what's uh, in the midst of this text, in this knitting together of their spirits in, in what is described, isn't the language of romance. It's the language of conspiracy. It's the same language you'd use for a group of people who knit themselves together to live for one purpose against the establishment of the government. That's the same word that Saul used to describe David and Jonathan later when they're scheming against him. This is a language of two men who fall into league with one another and push on with the same purpose. 
You see, what happens in this moment for Jonathan, uh, the way I like to describe it, is that Jonathan takes David into his heart. All that David is, his purposes, his plans, what he is on about, what God is doing through him, he takes all that he is into his heart. And that is the making of their friendship. That is where the depth of their intimacy comes from. What, what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, there's two things, I think, in this passage that help us understand what it means to take someone into your heart. The first is this idea of binding, of knitting together. It said that Jonathan loved David as himself. It's the idea of taking the purposes of someone and taking them into your own life like they're your own. You know that moment in friendship after a little bit when you've been talking, you've had a few chai lattes, I don't have coffees, and you SMS a little bit and, uh, you know, uh, after that last conversation and you walk off and you you find that on the way home you, you can't stop thinking about the things they told you about their life. And maybe even when you walk back you start to shoot up a prayer to God that he would help them and be with them in their pain or in their joy. You know that moment when the listening suddenly becomes a claw into your heart and that person begins to seep in and there seems to be a little bit less of you and a little bit more of them. That binding of two life purposes and people together in friendship and intimacy in that way. That's what you see happening with David and Jonathan. The combining of the two. And it's not like Jonathan is going to live David's life for him. That's not what happens. He doesn't take control of it. But he walks with him in it. And he makes his purposes his own, his enemies his own, and protects him at cost of his life. So there's a binding of purposes there. But the second thing is, there's a deep level of commitment. And you see this in verse 3. You may have noticed this. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Having bound himself with David, he commits to it. We're used to the language of covenant around marriage. And that makes sense. That's the only place we see people making promises with each other, which is what a covenant is. But even in the last couple of centuries in England, there have been men and women who made covenants of friendship with one another. There's even a record in England of two men who covenanted with one another, not romantically, in friendship, who ended up being buried in the same coffin. That level of commitment that willingness to say, I will be there no matter what, runs at a complete crosshairs with our culture, doesn't it? With the idea that the good life is the unfettered life, the unhindered life, with the least attachments and obligations. Here, the good life is the committed life, is the bound life. And I think you know this. I bet that the best, one of your best experiences of friendship was when someone decided to walk with you in a season of life. I've had this happen with me, even recently, when some difficult things were happening. And some of my friends came to me and they said, you know what? We're going to walk with you in this. We're going to see it out with you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to meet with you. We will walk with you. They committed. They bound themselves to my purpose and committed to it. And to me, those are some of the richest experiences of friendship I've had. Walking in the darkness together, committedly. A 
Of course, that takes a level of articulation, doesn't it? Of actually naming the kind of relationship you have, of naming your need of the other person and what they can give to you and, and finding a way to do that. You see, we exist in what is kind of a, a relational needs economy where we give as much uh, as we think we will uh, get back. We will be as committed as, we, as long as we think there is enough getting back out to us because we think that that is the way we use relationship. But here it is the committed life that flourishes. The making of friendship is binding and committing to walk with someone in their purpose rather than simply our own. How do you find taking people into your heart? So how do we do it? How do we go about making friendships? If, make, uh, if they're made by taking people into your heart, what do we do about that? And here's where I want you to flick the Philemon. We will go back to 1 Samuel for a verse, 1183 in Philemon. Uh, what you see in Philemon is, the, is ha- that maybe more of the how of friendship. And what's so interesting, thing, interesting here is that it's just messy and unlikely. The how of friendship is really just unpredictable and crazy. Uh, the book of Philemon uh, is a letter from Paul while he's in prison to Philemon, uh, who lives in Colossae. And it's a letter about one of Philemon's ex-employees, one of his slaves, Onismus. Turns out that Onismus, though his name means useful, was quite useless and legged it and shirked all his responsibility, maybe even stole some things and just got out of there and left a mess in his wake. What you have here is an account of the fact that Onismus, this unknown slave running away from Colossae, and his chance encounter with Paul, the great missionary of the New Testament. And what Paul describes is Onismus' complete transformation. Have a read in verse 10. He says, he's writing to Philemon about Onismus, I appeal to you for my son Onismus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Paul says to Philemon, guess what? Onismus has found out how to live up to his name. He's come to himself. He's become the man that he was named for. The useless has become useful. This is Paul's way of describing what happens to Onismus when he encounters the living God in his love. That's often what happens to us, is we become the people that we're actually supposed to be uh, in the power of God's forgiving and mighty love. And that's happened to Onismus here in his encounter with Paul. But what's interesting is how dear Onismus becomes to Paul in the process. He calls him my son, who is very dear to me. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you, and I would have liked to keep him. Paul describes Anismus as his very heart. In those times, maybe in the prison with Paul, Anismus and the stories they told together about life and Jesus has meant that Anismus has found his way into Paul's heart. And Paul doesn't even want to be parted from him. So dear is he to him. Such is the intimacy that they share with one another. 
It's not just a one-way relationship. Onesimus is also caring for Paul, looking after him after his transformation and becoming, living up to his name of being useful. He is being useful to Paul. But Paul is so uh, bound to Onesimus' life at this point that he writes to Philemon, begging him to take Onesimus back. Um, and he, even to the point in verse 18 where he says, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I am Paul, and I'm writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back. Paul not only takes on Onesimus' spiritual life, not only takes on his economic life, but he takes on his very debt himself. Such is his bound commitment to him. Such is his uh, covenanted uh, connection with him. But what we see happening here is extraordinary, isn't it? And the more I think about this story, the more extraordinary I think it is. It's, it's just so bizarre. And I think the thing this shows us about friendship is threefold. And the first thing is most important, and it's this. Uh, you see, you've got to ask the question here. Why does Paul notice Onesimus at all? You know? How come he even sees him? This slave on the run, this useless man. Paul seems to have been open to the most unlikely friendship imaginable, to befriending a lost slave and showing him the love of Jesus. There's something about the love that God has shown for Paul that has shattered his perception of who might be his friend. And his eyes are open to even Onesimus. It begs the question, who is around you? Who do you see? Who is unlikely? Who is useless around you? You see, in the ancient world, you chose friends who were useful, who, who put up your, your status in the social ladder or gave you some economic or uh, honoring kind of lift up. But here, it's the complete opposite. And maybe we need to be open to the unlikeliness of things, knowing the love of God. But there's two other things here. One is you just notice the extraordinary warmth that Paul has for Onesimus. You can imagine him meeting one day and smiling at him and being kind to him. Paul, in other parts of the New Testament, tells Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, which seems really weird. But it's just a way of saying, show warmth to one another when you meet. Maybe it's the warmth that was the beginning of Paul's undoing. That warm look in the eye toward Onesimus, where things started to begin. But thirdly, there's something deeper happening here because Paul heard the whole story. Paul heard all of the past. Paul heard everything and took it in and then dealt with it. You can imagine here that Paul actually has to listen to Onesimus deeply. Had to wait for the moment when Onesimus started to tell him the depth of the things that were happening in his heart. To actually be ready to receive from him a moment of trust. Paul was not only warm toward him, but heard him, listened to him, probably prayed for him incessantly. The how-to of friendship may be simple as that. Being open to the unlikely, warmly greeting, and just starting to listen. Maybe that's the beginning of our undoing and the entering of people into our hearts. So why do we get in our way? What stops us 
Why do we so often draw back from saying the words of walking with the person, of sharing, of hearing? What holds us back? Maybe that narrative of freedom is so thick and our self-sufficiency is so strong that we just find it too hard to shake. That's where I want to take you back to 1 Samuel for just a minute. There's one verse we missed, verse 4. I think it's the most extraordinary verse there. You might have noticed, but Jonathan gets undressed. Not completely, but he takes off his armor and his tunic and his sword and his bow and he hands them to David. It's quite peculiar. But you see, everything that Jonathan wore was a sign that he was a prince. Everything was there to show that he was Saul's son and that he was the heir apparent to Israel. And so those marks were the marks of the next king. And what he does is take the marks off him and put them onto David. It's an act of abdication. It's an act of setting aside his rights as a prince in recognition of the true king to come. Jonathan beholds the glory of God in David and recognizes God's Messiah and bows the knee. And though he is the free prince of Israel, abdicates all of his purposes, all of his energy, all of his thought, all that he is at the foot of the Messiah. And he does it freely. And I think that is the place where this all begins. All of this friendship stuff, this new relational life, begins with an act of abdication, of recognition of the true Messiah. And we don't have King David with the the giant's head, thank goodness, dangled in front of us. But you see, the most unlikely friendship imaginable is God in humanity. God, in his infinite freedom, without obligation, without any tie, ultimately unrestrained, ultimately in control, bound himself to our flesh in the person of Jesus. You see, God takes us into his heart. So much so that he comes and sends his son into the world and not only binds himself to our flesh, but to our sin and to our death and to our mess, to our self-sufficiency and its brokenness and the wrath that it deserves and walks it with it freely to the cross. You see, friends, it's to the extent that the glory of of your Messiah is in your sight, that you see him laying down his freedom on your behalf. It's to the extent that you abdicate toward that vision that this friendship stuff can begin. And I want to urge you tonight to abdicate, to abdicate the sense of freedom that our culture has given to us at the foot of the God who died for you. And to start live a new set of friendships and relationships that are soaked in His love, that make the most unlikeliness person imaginable the most useful friend 
that can warmly embrace even the person next to you, that can listen and take others into your heart and risk yourself for their sake. Friends, abdicate to your Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.